everyone, and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast series, where we are all about helping you expand your opera knowledge. I'm Naomi Baratera, your host, and whether it's your first time listening or if you're coming back for more, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen today. In this episode, we are excited to present an event with live performers for the first time on our podcast, and in it, Jane Marsh, a renowned soprano herself and guild lecturer, gives historical and musical insights into Tosca and Madama Butterfly, with our musical examples performed by soprano Kelly Griffin and pianist George Nezick. I hope you enjoy the episode, and if you do, please take a moment to write a review in iTunes. This was from a live event that happened just a few days ago, so we are very excited to be able to share it with all of you. Now here is Jane Marsh discussing Puccini's Tosca and Madama Butterfly. We've got two divas today in our um, Puccini course. We left Mimi with her modesty in La Boheme, not to be underestimated, however, in its effect. And we're moving into Tosca and then Madame Butterfly. And in, in the course of when these operas were composed, I'm going to start with Tosca because that's the opera after La Boheme. Uh, Puccini's Tosca, I don't need to tell you, has thrilled audiences for more than a century. And discussion of Tosca today will focus on a historical occupation of Italy, it, it, the Italian, the French, the Austrian, relating also to the Tosca story. So it's very important. Also the musical form and specific Verismo style. If you'll remember last time, I intimated, if not said blatantly, that sometimes with La Boheme and up until La Boheme, Puccini was not necessarily estimated as a Verismo composer, though he composed during the Verismo period, which is a distinct period at the end of the Romantic era. But with our operas today, he can be called really veristic. And so I think this is interesting that we can, I can explain a little bit why. And of course, the music and the vocalism of the characters and the heroines are particularly distinctive in our operas today, and some of the arias and musical numbers have been cherished universally since they were written. Tosca is an opera in three acts. It's by Giacomo Puccini, I don't need to tell you that, to an Italian libretto by uh, Luigi Illica and Giuseppe Giocosa. And this is important because as of Manolesco, which was our first diva, these two gentlemen who were experts uh, in writing libretti came on board and they stayed on board through Madame Butterfly. And this I find because Puccini felt such a kinship to them, uh, he was having such trouble with librettists before that. In fact, the opera before La Boheme, Edgar, would have been a success musically but was not a success because of a faulty libretto. So it's really important that he brought these two men, Ilica and Giocosa, on board. The premiere of Tosca was at the Teatro Constanzi in Rome on the 14th of January, 1900. And the work basically was based on the play La Tosca by Victorien Sardou, which was written in 1887. It was a French language dramatic play. It is a melodramatic piece. And it is set, the play I'm talking about now, in June 1800 in Rome, with the kingdom of Naples' control of Rome threatened then in the play by Napoleon's invasion of Italy. Tosca, the opera by Puccini, contains depictions of torture, murder, and suicide. The play does too, but it's much more elaborative because it has many more characters. Yet, it, the, the opera includes some, in spite of all of these sordid elements, it includes some of Puccini's greatest known lyrical arias and is inspired, has inspired, per memorable performances from many of opera's leading singers 
versed not only in verismo, but also in verismo, which is necessary when you're doing a piece like Tosca. Puccini was able to see Sardou's play, Sardou's play when it was touring Italy in 1889, and after some vacillation, Puccini obtained the rights to turn the work into an opera in 1895. And uh, he basically turned this wordy French play into a succinct Italian-styled opera, but it took him four years to do it. Tosca premiered at an incredibly uh, difficult time of unrest in Rome, and its first performance was delayed for one day for fear of disturbances. The opera, however, was an enormous public success. Musically, Tosca is structured as a through-composed work. It's like an ocean of sound without interruption for set pieces where one applauds and then the music continues. The idea is that it morphs itself into each particular piece and continues on as an incredible through-composed kind of work. It has arias, it has recitatives, it has choruses, and it's musically, as I say, woven into a seamless whole. Puccini used in this case, in this very way, uh, Wagnerian through composed nests, but he also used leitmotifs, which were really thematic um, elements identifying characters, objects, if you will, and also ideas. The power of Tosca's score and the inventiveness of the orchestration have been widely, widely, widely acknowledged. The dramatic force of Tosca and its characters continues today to fascinate performers and audiences, and the work remains one of the most frequently performed operas. Uh, let us be reminded that our operas up to this point in the Puccini Heroines course have all been created, quite interestingly I think, from French source material. Manon Lescaut was Meillac et Gilles, and uh, La Boheme from Murger. Tosca from Sardou, Madame Butterfly from Pierre Lotti, although there are other uh, contributors, two Americans known as Lang, and of course Balasco, who is from San Francisco. And his play is what actually uh, uh, inspired Puccini with Madame Butterfly, but we'll get to Madame Butterfly in a second. Though Puccini's operas were composed in a verismo style, and here we start with where I left off last time, questions by sources arose and still arise as to whether Puccini represented really the verismo style priorities. Um, Puccini's Tosca finally, I can say unquestionably, documents true verismo priorities and style, and as does Madame Butterfly, and I will tell you why as we get into the style of Verismo when we address Madame Butterfly. But early in the 1800s, playwright Victorien Sardou began a collaboration with the immensely popular and talented actress Sarah Bernhardt. So I don't need to tell you where he got his idea of a diva, because Sarah Bernhardt was an over-expressionistic eh, 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 kind of an actress who ate up the scenery and the stage to say nothing of her colleagues and made and documented history because of it. So you want a diva who has command not only vocally but also has command scenically and looks like a diva, at least can move like a diva. All about body language. He provided, Sardou did, provided Bernhardt with a, a series of historical melodramas, but his greatest glory came when he present, presented uh, Bernhardt with the play La Tosca, which premiered in Paris on the 24th of November, 1887. And as I mentioned, Puccini had seen La Tosca in Milan and, and, and Turin. And on the 7th of May, 1889, Puccini wrote to his publisher, Giulio Ricordi, and said, I see in this La Tosca from Sardou 
the opera I need with no overblown proportions, no elaborate spectacle, nor will it call for an unusually excessive amount of music. However, Sardou preferred actually to have his play impersonated in the opera style from a French composer because he didn't trust what an Italian composer was going to do to it because the taste in style and presentation is considerably different between the two countries. Um, Sardou's play can be seen in a five-act version, his idea of La Tosca, and Puccini contained the play in a three-act opera. So it meant he had to cut considerably, Puccini did. The broad details of the play are definitely present in the plot of Tosca, but the original Sardou play contains many, many, many more characters and much more detail than the opera. So in the play, the, the uh, lovers are portrayed basically as a French couple, and the character of Floria Tosca closely, naturally, models Bernhardt's personality, but her lover Cavaradossi I think of Roberto Alagna, is a Rome, of Roman descent, but born in Paris, fits to a T, because he is from Sicilian background, parents, Sicilian background, but he was born in Paris and counts as a Frenchman, but has command of both styles. This was what Sardou wanted. In the opera, the character's action needed to be suitable for an Italian opera, which is the very thing I also said about Manon Lescaut. French piece from Manon Massenet, which is very French and perfumed, but it needed to get away from all of that perfume and get into the blood and guts of Italian opera. Well, when you have Tosca that demands blood and guts in addition to the blood and guts, you've got Verismo, and I'll explain exactly what that is in a minute. So during 1897, Puccini was devoted mostly, I must say, to the performances of La Boheme, our opera of last week, but in August 1898, he set about to cut not only the play, his idea of the play of Sardou, but also his opera that he had to that point composed, leaving three in the opera, leaving three very strong characters trapped in an airless, violent, tightly uh, wound melodrama. And you really can say that about Tosca with little room for lyricism. It's get out there and honk it out in the most beautiful way possible because you've got elements that you have to send it over. Typical of Puccini's thoroughness uh, and to authenticate the Italianness of Tosca, Puccini investigated melodies to the hymn that is often played in Roman churches. He also adapted the music that was uh, exactly to the pitch of the St. Uh, uh, Peter's Basilica. And Puccini journeyed to Rome and the Castel Sant'Angelo to measure the sound, the sound of the bells there. And in Act Two, when Tosca sings the cantata offstage, before she is invited in, or before she comes in, actually, when you can hear her through the window in Scarpia's drawing room, uh, celebrating the defeat of Napoleon, Puccini wanted to follow the text of Sardou's play and use the music by Giovanni Paziello. This is a classical composer. So he composed, Puccini did, an imitation of Paziello's style, and then borrowing music from Edgar, which was his opera a few before, uh, Puccini finally was able to mark the final page of his Tosca, completed in September 1898. By December 1899, Tosca began rehearsal in the Teatro Constanzi in Rome, uh, and it was decided that the premiere should be there because it, the, play, the actual play and the opera particularly document landmarks in Rome and certainly Italy. As a historical context tells us, Tosca occurs in Rome in the evening and early morning of the 17th and 18th of June, 1800. Italy had long been divided into a number of small states, 
with the Pope in Rome ruling the Papal States in Central Italy. Following the French Revolution, a French army under Napoleon invaded Italy in 1796, entering Rome almost unopposed on the 11th of February, 1798, and establishing rule in the real-life consul's office known as, here the man, Liberto Angelucci. He is, if you want to use your imagination, Angelotti in the opera. And Angelotti is the one who makes the first entrance in the first act and is the one that Cavaradossi helps and Tosca then is involved in as well. So they took Angelucci and made it Angelotti and we have an opera. In September uh, 1799, the French, who had protected the Republic, withdrew from Rome. And in May 1800, Napoleon brought his troops across the Alps to Italy again. On June 14th, uh, Napoleon's army met the Austrian forces who were there in the Battle of Marengo near Alexandria and Austrian troops were initially successful at that point. However, fresh, fresh men, fresh French troops arrived to take in late afternoon to take um, the, the Austrians by attack. The Neapolitans abandoned Rome, and Rome in an afternoon went from being occupied by the Austrians to being occupied by the French for the next 14 years. So Tosca has a lot to do with Italy having changed in a day, and there is a political thread that runs through the whole of Tosca, and this is the reason that Scarpia, the general um, police chief, is looking for Angelotti, who is the consul who was in prison and escapes, and Cavaradossi, who helps him. All of this has a political element. So with the story of Tosca, Tosca correlating history, the 1900 premiere was a national, but a very national event. Many Roman dignitaries attended, and a number of Puccini's operatic rivals, not the least of which was Pietro Mascagni, who documents having composed the first Verismo opera, Cavalleria Rusticana, which we have had across the street recently. And this documented something incredible in Puccini's Opera Tosca, but also in the history of Italy. M music critics basically ascribe the success, the immense success and popularity of Tosca because of its taut effectiveness of its melodramatic plot. The vocal and dramatic opportunities given to three leading characters and two great arias, Visidarte, which we're going to hear today, and Elucevan, Le Stelle, which is the third act tenor aria. These are arias that one hears over and over again, whether they're in the opera or in concert. And it's noted that the work Tosca, Puccini's Tosca, remains the most popular opera, only to be surpassed by La Boheme. Interesting, both, interestingly, both by Puccini. So, by the end of the 19th century, the classical form of opera structure in which arias, duets, and set-piece vocal numbers are impersonated, or will better said, interspersed with passages of recitative or dialogue, this had all been abandoned, even in Italy. One likes to say that the reason that Italy got influenced is because it was happening outside of Italy, which it was, but it was also happening inside Italy. People felt all over the world, musically, that things were changing because the times were changing. So operas were becoming through composed, not just because Wagner wanted it, but also because some of the conductors and composers in Italy also wanted it. And this, again, as I say, was with a continuous ocean of music. Tosca, if you will, is the most Wagnerian, just so we can hang our hat on something identifiable of Puccini's score, in its musical use of thematic motives. But Puccini does not, Verdi didn't either, does not modify his motives, but uses them to refer 
to identify characters, objects, ideas as reminders within the narrative. Wagner got much more complicated than that, and this is the reason that it takes so long to explain a Wagner opera, not the least of which is that he repeats everything 25 times. If he'd repeat it twice, they'd be half as long, and that really is true. Not that it's not substantial material, it's just very long-winded. But in terms of Tosca, and in terms later uh, when uh, Verdi decided to do some of his things in his late period, there is this ocean of sound. The thematic ideas are blatantly set. To this effect, Act One in Tosca introduces various thematic motives, identifying the three main characters, not necessarily in this order, but also in this order, Scarpia, Tosca, Cavaradossi. In Act Two of Tosca, Puccini rises to his greatest height as the master of musical macabre. Act two begins quietly with Scarpia musing on the forthcoming downfall of Council Angelotti and painter Cavaradossi, while in the background a gavotte is played in a distant quarter of the Farnese Palace. Puccini used a melody for this that was composed by his deceased but then 15-year-old brother, and he felt that he was complimenting his brother because this melody could live on forever in Tosca. In Act Two, we are also introduced to the great aria Visidarte by Tosca. This is a lyrical andante based, andante meaning not terribly fast, based on Tosca's Act One motive. So, before she even makes an entrance, there is a motive identifiable with Tosca, which is reoccurred in the Act II Visidarte aria. It is perhaps, the aria is, the, the, the opera's best known aria, yet was regarded by Puccini as a mistake. Puccini considered completely cutting it, eliminating it altogether because he felt it held up the action. So Visidarte, we need to realize, is a heartfelt plea to God, one of a number of operatic prayers that sort of come through opera every now and then, the text being, I lived for my art, I lived for love, I never harmed a living soul, why, why then, oh God, do you reward me like this? You know that she's being chased around the room by Scarpia, and suddenly, the whole momentum of a very fast-moving second act comes to a standstill, and we have a performance within a performance. And it has become an enormously successful aria, but in fact, it really does hold up the action, but not in a bad way. It just is suddenly, when you've got things going like this, and they suddenly come to a standstill, while a woman prays about her life in art and love, you listen because of what Puccini does with the act. So for a moment, the opera's relentless forward-moving momentum is paused as we and Scarpia are held spellbound by Tosca's prayer. The aria is a show-stopping aria, in part, as I say, the way due to the way Puccini has structured the act by using a particular key, by the tempo, by the dynamics and orchestration, all of it changes for the opening bar, all of it changes for the opening bar which is lilting in the air for the beginning of this prayer-like aria. After uh, the heated exchange between Scarpia and and Tosca, immediately before, even with a, with a snare drum that gets us going, there is a huge rallentando, which means a huge slowing down, a huge diminuendo, which means a quieting down, and musically, this is a signposting that the aria is a standalone moment, and we like that but it's because of the way Puccini introduces it to us. The tempo changes from a crisp allegro 
to a relative stillness of andante lento appassionato, which is a slower walking pace. You've got to be a little heavy on your feet. But that's the tempo. This creates a performance within a performance, as I mentioned, and it allows sopranos a chance not only vocally to experiment what they can do and experience what they can do. An interesting story is about the wonderful soprano Maria Yeritsan. I remember seeing her sometimes when I was a student. Uh, she used to attend the Metropolitan Opera. She was from 1887 to 1982. When performing the Act II of Tosca in the early 1900s, she, in this course of running from, from, um, and fighting with Scarpia, she fell during the scuffle on the floor. This was just before the Visi d'Arte and had to sing the Visi d'Arte aria, that means I live for love, I live for art, on the floor. And with Puccini's approval, that's how she performed the aria for the rest of her career. And there are many, particularly Viennese sopranos of later year, who did the same thing because it was an effect. But not an easy effect, I must say, if you're lying on your stomach. It's not, a, it's not mandatory, but it, it has something. However, it happened just by chance. So after stabbing Scarpia, we now are past the aria, Tosca's contemptuous, e avanti a lui tremava tutta Roma. She says it almost, it's on a middle C, actually C sharp, I think. And she says it as a monotone. It's very tough on the voice. Sometimes it's sung, sometimes it's spoken. The music gradually fades, and the most impressively active and macabre scene in all of opera comes to an end. And the final notes in Act Two are those, interestingly enough, of the Scarpia motive, which was introduced also in the first act in a minor key. So I want to introduce our artists today because I want you to hear this aria from, uh, from Kelly Griffin and from George Nessick. They're going to perform both of the arias, but they're going to perform first Tosca. Let's welcome Kelly and George.
leave Tosca without talking about the third act. So to conclude act three, Puccini is very justified in his treatment of Tosca by Tosca's preoccupation with teaching Cavaradossi, we are really at the end of this act now, preoccupation with Tosca's teaching Cavaradossi to feign death in front of the firing squad, Tosca having been convinced by the evil Scarpia that there would be blanks in the rifles and that they too, both of them, could go free. That was the condition. And in the final bars, as Tosca evades Scarpia's men and leaps to her death, we know she goes to, to um, uncover the body of, of uh, Cavaradossi. We hear, as loudly as the orchestra can possibly play it, the music of E Lucevan le Stelle which has nothing to do with Tosca, but everything to do with Cavaradossi. So it has uh, been argumented the, and jested as well that when this happens, the orchestra picks up its instruments and just blasts away of anything that comes to mind. Because it is very definitely not something that resolves the opera with the name of Tosca, but resolves it with the name of Cavaradossi. But I want to listen, I want all of us to listen to the, what I think is the be best rendition, at least on record, of this discovery that Tosca has been hoodwinked. She goes over to the body of Cavaradossi and she says, Presto su, get up, get up, hurry up, get up. And he lies there and she takes off the cape that has been thrown over him and realizes that in fact Cavaradossi is dead. So then she hears voices in the background of Scarpia's men and soldiers, and she runs up to the precipice and sings e avanti, Dio, bye bye, Scarpia, and jumps. But I want you to hear Maria Callas and what she does with the timing of the parlando, the text of this, of this particular closing piece. Let's listen. Presto su, Mario, Mario, su presto andiam, su, su. authenticity specifics, and I already talked a little bit about those, and his choices of dynamics and bells and songs and costumes and so forth for, um, for Tosca. He did the same thing with all of his, his operas. Um, it's interesting that he wanted to have operas, though they were from French source material, they had interesting cities that he wrote about, Paris for La Boheme, Rome for Tosca, uh, Nagasaki for Madame Butterfly, and we'll get to Beijing next week with Turandot. Madame Butterfly is one of the most famous operas in the world, and it brings Japanese people enormous pride, and it's popular among, generally, among international as well as American and Japanese opera goers. 
Chocho-san, as you may or may not know, in Japanese is the English, is the Japanese way of saying butterfly, hence the title. Chocho-san is like saying butterfly. We feel enormous nostalgia from the melodies of this opera as Puccini uh, mixes his Japanese melody, melodic idea, which are actually real things, into his ideas of Italian opera. He includes um, the Sakura Sakura, which is a Japanese melody, and also the Japanese national anthem, to say nothing of the American national anthem. We know that Puccini was an Italian composer called the greatest composer of Italian opera after Verdi. While Puccini's early work was rooted in traditional late 19th century romantic Italian opera, he successfully, and we note it with these two operas that I talk about today, he successfully developed his work in the realistic verismo style. And verismo means realism, hence I say the realistic verismo style, which is really exemplified today. The verismo style generally is distinguished by realistic, sometimes I have to say sordid and violent depictions of everyday life, especially the life of the contemporary lower classes. Now, we don't have lower classes in either one of our operas today, so this is why sometimes people like to pick at Puccini, even though he has composed the second act of Tosca. And uh, Sakura Sakura, which is what is uh, the uh, dying out of pride uh, uh, um, butterfly does at the end of this act. They're both noble people or not of the lower class, but otherwise it answers all of the priorities of Verismo. Puccini succeeded in mastering the orchestra as no other composer had done before him, even Verdi, if you will, creating new forms by manipulating structures that he inherited from great Italian composers and the great Italian tradition, and loading them, and I mean loading them, with bold harmonic progressions which had really nothing to do with what was happening in Italy at the time. Now, that's important to know because Italy was influencing Italy, but there were some outside forces, so they were very much in step with what was happening in France, Austria, and Germany, which was another reason people like to say that Puccini, though he composed in the Verismo period, era, he was not necessarily a Verismo composer, but there is um, a lot of discrepancy about that. No com uh, composer communicates more directly with an audience than does Puccini. To this end, Madame Butterfly is an opera in three acts. It was originally two acts, but there's more to the story than that, and I'll get to it. It's by Puccini, and it's his sixth opera. The libretto is um, based in part on the story of Madame Butterfly, 1898, by John Luther Long, which in turn was based partially on stories that he told to his sister, and also partially on the French novel Madame, uh, Madame Chrysantheme by Pierre Lotti. The libretto continues the collaboration, thank the Lord, and he did, between Ilica and Giocosa, those days from Manon Lescaut. Uh, Long's short, John Luther Long's short story was dramatized then again by David Belasco from San Francisco as a one-act play, Madame Butterfly, a tragedy in Japan in 1900. And after premiering in New York, Belasco's play arrived in London, and that is where Puccini saw it in 1900. Puccini was clearly looking for source material that could speak of two cultures joining in harmony. He was very much about that in almost all of the pieces that he did, but particularly his later pieces. And Puccini's interests lay really in uniting cultures. Uh, his compositions, Puccini's do, carried more depth 
of communication than immediately meets the eye. So if you take some time to listen to the glory of some of these pieces, you realize that they are more layered than you think. Uh, I find it interesting because I speak languages that Puccini spoke little or nothing of the languages of the cultures with which he preoccupied himself to say nothing of the geography because there ain't no desert in Louisiana. <laughs> but we like it, don't we? Because it makes somehow, it makes our heart strings sing. And so we don't care. But Puccini's need to ensconce himself in cultures speaks through his devotion to his, I like this, to his belief in his musical interpretations of cultures. His belief in his musical interpretations of colors, of cultures. So he believed very much that the way he was representing these cultures through his talents made sense. You've got to believe in yourself or nobody's going to do it for you. Um, the Madame Butterfly, the two-act version, had its premiere in February 1904, which is actually the year of the story at La Scala Milano, and it was very poorly received, despite the presence of some very notable singers. This was basically due to the fact that Puccini had been in a car accident and he was not able to complete the piece in time, so it was inadequate in that way, and also there was inadequate time for rehearsal because of this. So um, he revised it later, later on and took the second act and divided it into two so that it became a three-act uh, entertainment. On May 28, 1904, this new version was performed in Brescia, where I just sang in the summer, I sang a Mahler recital, and was an enormous success. Madame Butterfly is now a staple of the standard operatic repertoire for companies around the world. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about his accident. So looking back to the barbs and hurdles that got in Puccini's way with his completion of Madame Butterfly, um, uh, on the 24th of February, Puccini was seri very seriously injured in a car accident where he was pinned under the car. The accident and its consequences slowed Puccini's completion of his next work, which was Madame Butterfly. And eventually, I find interesting, in the course of performances and so forth, he tweaked the piece so many times that he got five versions out of his three-act version. And in 1907, Puccini made his final revisions to the opera in its fifth version, and it is what we now know as the standard version. It was not the version that was the version in, in 1905 that was the three-act version after the second-act version, but it is now this, which was a success. But he tweaked it even more five times, and it now what we see now on stage is what is known as the standard version of Madame Butterfly. Um, it's the most performed at any rate, unless somebody wants to be eccentric in, with a director or whatever. It's the most, most performed in the world. Puccini continued to compose until 1924 when he was diagnosed with throat cancer. He was a cigar smoker and died. Puccini left his final opera, Turandot, unfinished. And it, that is our opera of the week next week, so I hope you'll all join me then. But we have now the opera of Madame Butterfly. The time is 1904 in the opera, and also the year that it premiered. The place is Nagasaki. We are in Act One, only so you get an idea of what's happening, in case you don't know Madame Butterfly. In 1904, the US naval officer named Pinkerton rents a house on a hill in Nagasaki, Japan. For him and his soon-to-be wife, Butterfly, or if you will, Chocho-san, um, she's a 15-year-old Japanese girl who, whom he expects to marry out of convenience. She doesn't know this. Since he intends to leave her when he finds a proper American wife. And since Japanese laws are relatively lax, or at least they were then, 
he feels that this is possible. The wedding is to take place in this house that he has rented. Butterfly has been so excited to marry an American that she earlier secretly converted to Christianity, having been brought up as a Buddhist. We now move to Act Three. A child has in the meantime been born to Cho Cho San. Pinkerton has not been around for some time. Suzuki, helper to Butterfly, and the baby are asleep. Butterfly remains standing and waiting. And distant voices at the beginning of Act Three set the mood. They are heard from the bay, and there are sailors singing, heave ho, heave ho. The sun rises and fills Butterfly's house with light. Let's listen to this beginning chorus. Very effective, the way Puccini does this, to set a mood that is not necessarily happy in the third act. So we get a feeling of enormous passion as she looked out the window in the third act. She, in the meantime, has been informed that Pinkerton is coming back to the island. We hear early morning sounds of sailors getting themselves ready. The tempo begins to slow down. The dynamic begins to get softer. And Butterfly is left with the reality that she must give up her son. Pinkerton and Kate, his American wife, have arrived to take Butterflies and Pinkerton's son. Kate, in the meantime, has been introduced to Butterfly by Sharpless, our baritone in the opera. And Kate asks for Butterfly's forgiveness. Butterfly tells Kate, I will only give up my child to you only if Pinkerton comes himself to get the child. Suzuki escorts Kate out. Butterfly tells Suzuki to close the house. She already has an idea. Butterfly has an idea of what's going to happen. Tells Suzuki to close the house. Then she orders Suzuki to go to the other room where her son is playing. 
Butterfly kneels before the statue of Buddha. Remember, she converted to Christianity, but she kneels in front of her ancestral gods. She raises a blade from her father's knife. She rises and kisses the blade, reads the inscription which says, who cannot live with honor must die with honor. Butterfly's child enters having been escorted by Suzuki, but Suzuki does not come in. Butterfly tells her child not to feel sorrow for his mother's desertion of him, but to keep a faint memory of his mother's face so he must look at her. She bids him farewell, seats him on the floor and blindfolds him. This is one kind of a production and it's what's in the score, but you know if you've seen Butterfly numerous times, it's changed by every director. But Puccini asked that he, she bid him farewell, seat him on the floor, blindfold him gently, and she gives him a miniature American flag to wave in greeting his father, which he does blindfolded throughout the following action. Butterfly takes the knife and walks behind the screen in her room. The knife clatters to the floor. Butterfly staggers from behind the screen with a scarf around her neck. She kisses her child and collapses. From outside, Pinkerton cries, Butterfly, and rushes in, but it's too late. Butterfly is dead. Now before I introduce Kelly and George again, let's compare quickly the two butterfly arias. The famous and beloved aria from the opera, I will even say perhaps more better known than the one we're going to hear, Un Bel Di, as musically heart-wrenching as it is, it is sung accompanied with one-dimensional simplicity. The myth of the Asian woman, if you will say the woman's blind faithfulness, is realized by the manipulation of the musical subtext by Puccini. The accompaniment that follows Chochosan's melody, her melodic verbatim, in open octaves, open octaves, for the entire aria almost, renders the sound, and this is important and this is why Puccini did it, renders the sound of foreign and exotic. One piece that is devoid of oriental, if you will, signifier is Chocho-san's suicide aria that we're going to hear. Whether it was to punch so Chocho-san's uh, dramatic moment with the stark scarcity of accompaniment to give Chocho-san a break from so much emotionalism the whole evening and from basically displaying herself as Japanese all the time. Puccini allows Chocho-san to sing and to have a voice without his musical commentary, Puccini's musical commentary. Pucci, uh, perhaps Puccini's logic was that the devastation of giving up husband and child doesn't need to be supplemented by musical accompaniment. It's clear enough. Puccini renders the beginning of this aria more universally human, womanly, if you will, than Japanese, as he refuses to comment on any kind of oriental signifiers in this aria. Perhaps this is what the audience appreciates because they can all tune into it from their various countries, especially, if you will, female members of the audience because to relate to motherhood and abandonment is not easy. It's easy even for us who are not mothers, but those who are mothers, it's incredibly easy. 
at least in this moment, the musical boundaries give way and the silent accompaniment of this aria, which we're going to hear in a minute, embraces Chocho-san as a Japanese, but moreover as a woman and as a human being. Judging in terms of its musical value, it seems understandable that the piece is received with unprecedented acclaim in Europe and in America. Its perennial popularity found is the ability of Cho Cho San's music to manipulate emotions universally and in an operatic context the character of Cho Cho San could seem to be the one who holds the scepter of authority, basically. Cho Cho San is a triumphant heroine with musical wings. Let's welcome Kelly and George. Thank you everyone for tuning into our podcast today. If you enjoyed listening and want to learn more about all the different live events that we run here at Lincoln Center in New York City, you can see our full calendar at www.metguild.org. Some of Jane's upcoming highlights for the remainder of the 2015-2016 opera season include a Mozart and Salieri vocal showcase that Jane will be hosting on May 1st, as well as a 50th anniversary celebration of Jane winning the gold medal at Russia's Tchaikovsky competition. Details for all of these events can be found on our website, metguild.org, and if you go to the For the Community tab, there's lots of information there for you. We look forward to welcoming you back for episode 5 next week, in which I'm excited to step back behind the podium and present a lecture from our opera boot camp series on female operatic voice types. Until then, I'm Naomi Baratera, your host, and thank you for listening.